0: Months and months ago, we uh, decided to preach through the book of Acts because it makes sense to preach through the book of Acts when you're a new church plant. You get to look at the uh, early church. You get to examine the scriptures that talk about all that, the historical account, the biblical account of the early church. And we're a very early church, so to speak. And so we've been kind of working our way through that book in a series entitled, You Will Be My Witnesses. Our objective has really been... um, uh, just, there's several objectives and goals behind it, but one of the one of the goals behind this series has been to be in, become emboldened uh, for the gospel in our community. Emboldened meaning fearless and these bearers of the gospel that are really fearless and shored up by God. That's really what the early church was. That might be one of the best ways to describe it was its boldness. I mean, it just went out and proclaimed the gospel to their countrymen and. And the church exploded exponentially. The Holy Spirit grew the church because they were all about the gospel. And so, one of our big goals has been to become emboldened for the cause of Christ. And um, sadly, in a lot of ways, being a churchman and a pastor for a lot of years now, and many of you know this, but uh, there seems to be a lack of that gospel infused boldness in the church. It seems like the church today is more about just trying to equip people to survive in this life instead of preparing them for the ministry of the gospel and so um uh, just being trained on how to you know maybe have a better marriage or how to i don't know be a more moral person if that was even possible i mean that's really the mantra of the church i don't know about you but that just does not appeal to me um, i want to serve god with my whole heart at all times i want to live an obedient in sometimes reckless life and fearless life for the gospel. I want to see the name of Jesus lifted up in our community, not just in our local church here, but uh, in the whole community. I want to see the banner of Christ hovering over Modesto, which seems to be a forsaken land. But I can tell you, darn it, that God is redeeming this place one soul at a time. He really is. And we want to be a part of that. And so part of our strategy has been to look at Acts to get marching orders for that, for that mission. We want to plant lots of churches that reach people for Christ. So it's kind of what we've been doing there. A couple of weeks ago, I didn't preach last week because I was, I was in uh, Suffering in Monterey. Um, you actually had a job down there, a DJ job. So we, my wife and I spent some time down there together, and we, we did the work on Saturday night and then kind of hung out the next day. And that was just really nice. And I can tell you, man, we are so blessed and privileged to, to, to have even men at this church at this stage that can proclaim the gospel and preach God's word and do it really well. And so I am so thankful that Colby stepped in. Now I didn't get to hear it yet. I'm the one that edits these things and puts them online, but I've been real busy, but I haven't got to hear it. I've gotten more feedback about his sermon than I've ever gotten from one of mine. And I'm okay with that and I bear false witness regularly. Um, But I heard you guys had a tremendous morning last week, and and glory to God, soli deo gloria, man. Thank you, Colby, for stepping in, and, and so many other people that just, you know, this church isn't built on me. I don't make it go around. I have one little part in it, and every one of us that serves here and is involved has one little part, and God brings it all together as one body, and things get done, and he does things in such an incredible way. But thank you, church, for... Let me go to get away to do that work and to spend some time with my lovely wife. We needed that time together. So two weeks ago, uh, we were engaged in this series, and we looked at Acts uh, 6, 8 to 15. Just to refresh our memories, through that time of study, we uh, were introduced really to a guy named Stephen. Stephen was a Hellenistic, uh, Messianic Jew. He was a Christian Jew who had been chosen to serve as a deacon in the Lord's Church. Uh, and we learned two weeks ago that he was an extraordinary man of faith. He was full of the Holy Spirit, full of power, full of grace. I mean, he was just this remarkable man. And I, I said two weeks ago that we've often looked at him as just kind of the first Christian martyr, but we really learned that he was so much more. And we're going to continue to learn that he was so much more than that, really an instrumental man in God's church, used by God in incredible ways. Um, We saw two weeks ago how Peter pretty much led the church to the Jews in Jerusalem, and then how Stephen kind of took it out to kind of like the half-Jews or Hellenistic Jews, and then Paul you know, took the gospel to uh, the Roman world, which would be the rest of the world. And so God's strategy in evangelism really was to have three main overseers and guys who were working, and that was Peter, Stephen, and then Paul. So, he was this awesome dude of faith, man, an incredible man of faith. Um, When he was away from his duties, uh, which were to care for the Hellenistic widows, uh, he could be found in the local Hellenistic synagogues, the synagogues were the Jews that spoke Greek, they were Hellenistic kind of Jews, they were kind of like Greek Jews, he would go into those synagogues of his own countrymen because he was a Hellenist, he would go into those places and proclaim Christ. He would go into those places, and he would uh, just very lovingly, I would say, uh, debate the truth claims of Christ, of the gospel. And he would do what the apostles often did, and that was that they would show Christ through the Old Testament. You know, they would show that, man, look, the gospel has always been present since day one, you know, since Genesis 3, where, you know, Christ would be coming through... Eve's seed. You know, the gospel has just always been present there. And so what these apostles did was they kind of showed through the Old Testament how the prophets were always talking about Christ and all this stuff. So he would go in to these synagogues of his own countrymen, and he would proclaim Christ. And then they would obviously rise up and, and challenge him and, and try to debate him and probably try to debunk him at times. But he just, he, he was, you know, he had God's wisdom. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, I was trying to compare him uh, to someone in our current day who we, he would be like, you know, with the level of intellect and biblical knowledge and ability to, bait, to debate and to win arguments. And I think the guy that he would be most like is Ravi Zacharias. Have you ever listened to that guy? That guy can go anywhere and defeat an argument against Christ. I mean, he, he'll go to Clemson. He went to the Mormon main temple in Utah and, and lovingly refuted their their... Miss theology. I mean, the guy is just incredible. Every time I listen to him, I just marvel at how people will challenge him from the audience, and he will, filled with grace and truth, debunk the argument via the scripture and truth. And he does it in such a way where those who are opposed don't walk away ticked. Maybe they do at times, but it's just it's just an amazing grace-filled kind of thing. And I think in a lot of ways that's who Stephen was. He was kind of like the Rabbi Zacharias he would go in and he would debate and he enjoyed doing it and he really could not be touched and it wasn't because he was smarter than them or anything it was because he was full of the holy spirit and he understood god's word and he went in and worldly wisdom you know you know this is true it just cannot stand against god's truth you know men build these scaffolds of worldly wisdom and philosophy and things and it just god's truth just dashes those things to pieces and, uh, and so that's what he was. He was this kind of fearless, bold guy who would go into these church settings and debate them with Jesus Christ. And why? What was his goal? To win them to Christ, not to win an argument. And so he was a powerful, powerful, powerful man. Now, what happened was three of the synagogues that he visited quite regularly had some guys in them that got ticked off and and came together and rose up against him. And What they did was they tried to refute him and debate him, and he, again, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with grace and truth, so to speak. He debunked their arguments, and, and they got really, really angry with him. I think it was pride, you know, their arrogance, they didn't like the fact that their arguments were dashed to pieces by God's truth. And so, they rose up against him and then they, they lost the argument and then they instigated men against him. False witnesses is what the Scripture says. They took these people that were willing to lie and bear false witness and they took them and sort of coached them and trained them on how to bring these arguments or these false claims against Stephen before the highest court. In the area, the Sanhedrin, and so that's kind of what's happened. They've instigated these men, they've stirred up crowds, and they've taken Stephen before the Sanhedrin, and they've built a case in front of the Sanhedrin, which was 71 members of this. uh, They were 71 members. There were 71 members of the Sanhedrin, highest-ranking religious officials in the area—Sadducees, Pharisees, all kinds of sees sea of galilee you know there was just all these seas in there and then there were these you know the priests and the high priests and the chief priests and the elders and just this conglomeration of the highest religious and political officials in the area and so they've lobbied this case against him in front of them and they're all standing there and that's kind of where we pick up now stephen's in the middle and he hasn't spoken yet he hasn't defended himself he hasn't done anything he's just standing there they've made their case against him and now he's going to respond it's going to be great. I'm, I'm really excited. That's where we left off. So, if you could, take your Bibles and turn to Acts 7. We're going to look at 1 to 7 today. Um, it would be impossible, I think, well, at least it would be for me to try to take on 60-some-odd verses in one setting. Sometimes, I can barely get past one verse. So, we've got to break this thing up in, into sections and, and analyze it, examine it, and study it, and see what God has for us. So, we're going to look at seven 1 to 7. What we're about to read and study is known as Stephen's Speech. Um, A better title for this would be Stephen's Apology, Um, but this isn't the typical apology where someone apologizes for for doing something wrong or for hurting someone. I think we have a very narrow view of what an apology is to some degree. It's a lot broader than just saying you're sorry. Uh, So this isn't the, the typical type of apology. Stephen is Not sorry, and he has no reason to be sorry uh, because he's been simply proclaiming the truth in love. So, this is what we would call an apologetic. Um, Apologetics is the study of the defense of the faith. Ravi Zacharias is an apologist. There's other men out there, uh, Ken Ham and others, that are apologists. So, this is like an apologetics thing. This is an apology, and it kind of comes from the It's derived from the Greek word apologia, uh, which means a speech in defense of something. Now, the goal of apologetics is really twofold. It is to defend the faith against attack, okay? When men rise up with their philosophical arguments, religious arguments, uh, whatever these things are against the truth claims of the Scripture, uh, an apology Uh, is to rise up and to to defend those truth claims against those lies, arguments, or false philosophies, whatever they are. So, it's twofold. It is to uh, protect or to defend against uh, attack, and it is to present uh, the truth claims of Christianity to unbelievers. Uh, We call that, we tend to call that evangelism, and evangelism really is what it is, but there's also an apologetic angle to it whenever you go out and you proclaim Christ. And you're trying to reach unbelievers with the message of the gospel, you're really giving an apology, uh, a grace, love-based argument for the truth claims of Christ for the gospel. So, it's really twofold. It's defense and to proclaim. And Stephen basically used in this great speech or apology, he used a fourfold uh, apologetic strategy to defend the truth and to evangelize his hearers. The allegations against Stephen were very, very uh, serious. Uh, in fact, they were uh, uh, basically, uh, the, you know, the penalty for such an offense that he has proclaimed to have committed would be death. They have said before the Sanhedrin, these false witnesses who were coached, they have said that Stephen blasphemed God, that's punishable by death, blasphemed Moses, that is punishable by death. Blasphemed the law, the Mosaic law, that alone is punishable by death. And blasphemed the temple, that too is punishable by death. So you have basically four claims against him. And he's got a fourfold strategy. What he's going to do in his apologetic speech is he's going to defend against those four key things, those four allegations. And that's what we're going to analyze and look at. He'll address each of them. And the way that he's going to do it is pretty amazing and awesome. And and he's doing it in the typical Hebrew fashion. And that would be through a narrative or through illustrating uh, something. And what he's going to do is illustrate, as we will see in this great speech, he's going to illustrate Israel's history from its, basically from its incarnation or beginning. He's going to take them all the way back and then run them through up to the current time. And then he's going to. Uh, while he's doing it, he's showing them their error, and in the end, he's going to put a big punctuation point on the end of it, and then he gets killed. But <laughs> maybe not what he was shooting for. Ah, I beg to differ exactly what he was shooting for. We will see this. He is going to basically defend against these four things through an apologetic speech, he will, and he will also prove to them simultaneously that he is not ignorant of the, four, uh, the things that they're accusing him of they believe in their minds that he's ignorant of God, Moses, the law, and the temple, and that's why he would make these claims. He's going to show that he understands Israel's history perfectly, probably better than many of them. This Stephen guy knew God's word. He knew it really, really well. So, he's going to defend. He's going to defend his, uh, against ignorance. Now, towards the end, as I said, he will flip through his apology. He will flip the allegations upon his hearers. And why does he do it? He does it in an effort to wake them up from their sin and disobedience. Now, we must keep in mind that Stephen's goal is not to get himself off the hook. He doesn't go into this fourfold thing so he can get himself granted some clemency or, you know, some freedom or anything like that at all. He has no desire to go in and to give some sort of defense and then to be freed and go back to ministry as usual or anything like that. He's not interested in being cleared before these men. He has no interest in being set free. His desire as a man of God is quite extraordinary. His desire is to go as far as he must go, even unto death, to prove to the Sanhedrin that they need to repent and to turn to Jesus Christ. One commentator wrote this, and I thought it was very fascinating and interesting. One commentator wrote this. He said that Stephen basically dared the Sanhedrin to kill him so that he could prove that Israel has always rejected and even murdered those whom God has sent to them. You see, Israel had a history of murdering and killing, or at, at the very minimum, undermining their prophets. Moses had one heck of a time leading those people. And all of the other prophets that came were either stoned or sawn in tune or killed by God's people. And so Stephen wants to show them, ultimately, their error and how they've treated all their prophets. And, and the thing is, at this moment in history, at this moment in the narrative, they, they are fully aware of how they've treated their prophets. And they sort of have this attitude of repentance, like... Well, we blew it with this guy, we blew it with this guy, we blew it with this guy, but they still don't get it. And he is seeking to prove to them by his own martyrdom that they are in error and that they, will, they, they continue to treat the people that God sent. Look how they treated the Messiah. God sent them a Messiah. They rejected him and murdered him. Stephen is forfeiting his own life to prove that point. Is that a man of faith or what? That you would actually take your own life and say, they're going to kill me for this, but I'm going to proclaim it. And ultimately, my death will prove to them that they've always turned their backs on the men that God has brought them. Are you kidding me? Yeah, that's exactly what he's aiming to do. I don't know if I have that kind of faith, that he would willfully put his life out there knowing that they're going to kill him, knowing that his own words are going to have him killed. That's what he's about to do. Isn't that incredible? Let's read our main text together and then we'll pray and we'll examine it line by line and it'll take several weeks to get through it. And all of these things that I've said, he'll draw out, he'll show the history and how they've rejected their leaders and all of this and then at the end it just kind of climaxes with this moment, unbelievable. Let's read it together, Acts 7, 1-7. to I have to get there. Acts 7, 1 to 7. I'll be reading from the Holy ESV Bible. <laughs> I'm going to convert you guys one of these days. I'm telling you. I'm going to get you to. Tr- <laughs> nope. <laughs> All right. 7, 1 to 7. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, here's his reply. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before uh, he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place." Father, as we begin to study Your Word, God, I mean, we've bathed this service in prayer and this is one of those moments before we proclaim Your Word, before I teach it, that we need to bathe this in prayer. man. We would never want to enter into a moment like this without first seeking you and asking for your help, God. We are finite beings with limited understanding and a strong propensity to sin, to distraction, Lord, and and we desperately need your help in this moment. I need your help to proclaim your truth, to be a vessel that you may use, God. So come, fill us now. We know that you're here. We sense your presence, but fill this time with your presence. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Fill these folks with your Holy Spirit. Grant them understanding. Grant them eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive your marvelous, miraculous truth. And may we not be mere hearers of your word, God, but doers, as James said. God, help us in this moment. May we marvel at your truth. May we fall deeper in love with you, Christ Jesus, for what you've done for us on the cross and through the resurrection the gospel. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, let's do this. We're going to break it down verse by verse. You might want to get your notes and stuff ready. And you can follow along. And I think I've even got stuff up on the screen, just the verses probably. Let's begin by part of verse 1. It says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? After the false witnesses gave their testimony, the high priest asked Stephen if he was a blasphemer, because that's the case they built against him. He's blasphemed God. He's blasphemed Moses. He's blasphemed the law. He's blasphemed the temple. The high priest simply says, is that so? The high priest at this time was probably still Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the reigning high priest during the ministry and trial of Jesus, and he held office, according to historical accounts, up to about 36 A.D. So it is believed that what we're reading took place before that. Um, Caiaphas, i have covered some of this stuff in the past, but it's good to refresh our memories, but Caiaphas, uh, he was the reigning high priest, and he was a Sadducee. Uh, he was also the uh, son-in-law of Annas, who was the former high priest. Caiaphas was a political leader. Um, He basically spent most of his time working to please Rome. He worked to keep Rome happy so that he and his cronies could maintain their incredible business of making huge bucks at the temple. Um, If you studied the gospel accounts, you'll see that the temple was this uh, place where lots of trade and and, and money was exchanged and, and, you know, animals were sold uh, so people could buy them to sacrifice them in that very space. And, and they were basically ripping people off. They were charging far more for a dove and for other things than they should have. And it was just this horrendous money-making scheme. It, they turned the temple basically into like a strip mall. Uh, you know, I just went to the Gilroy Outlets, wonderful place. But in a way, they kind of turned this place into the Gilroy Outlets, you know? It just it just became this strip of 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 merchandise and selling and outrageous prices and it was just this incredible money-making scheme and they had no Adidas outlet and that's a travesty. But it was just a it was a bad thing. It was really a, a business. And you know, the place had been sanctified for spiritual uses. It was the house of God on earth, so to speak. And so for men, the men who lead, you know, Israel to turn it into this place of mercantile was just, it was atrocious, terrible, terrible thing. And so Caiaphas spent a lot of time appeasing the Romans because the Romans could come in and shut that thing down in a nanosecond. And there were times where they did come in and intervene and mess with their religion and business when things got out of hand. And so Caiaphas spent a lot of time smooching them and, you know, and just whining and dining them and being in cahoots with them and, and those kinds of things. Um, Ultimately, Caiaphas was a godless man. Um, He rejected all things supernatural. He was a Sadducee, and that's what they did. They were these rationalists, you know, and believed in only that which could be um, proven via scientific method or whatever it would be. There's a ton of those types of folks in the church today and in our culture, but he was a, a rationalist, he was a godless man, rejected all things supernatural. Caiaphas is a great example of why a state or government-run church is an extremely bad idea. When the state or government runs the church, they can pretty much dictate how the church should function. Um, And they can appoint to power whoever they want to oversee the church, even godless men. You know, the First Amendment to the United States Constitution protects against these things. But the question is how long will they last? How long will that amendment stand? I don't believe that it will stand much longer. It's under attack constantly. Um, There are wicked people who are constantly, perpetually advocating really for a government run church that will control what is taught in the church, how the church can function. And the ultimate reason behind all of that resistance against the church and wanting the government to regulate and control the church is so that people can maintain their sinful lifestyles. You know, in the name of tolerance, it's you can't say certain things. That's intolerant for you to say certain things. And we don't care if the Bible, which we already reject, says certain things. And so there's this constant war going on. There's people lobbying all the time at the state capitol and beyond to have the church restricted. Ultimately, what those folks would want is a government-run church, where the government can dictate how the church can teach, what it, how it can function. And then obviously, you'd have to appoint leadership. And the government has no concept, not that there aren't members in the government that are godly, there are good Christian men and women in the government. For the most part, it has no concept of that, so they can appoint anyone. And so, it could very well be that, that something like that would happen in the future. That an amendment is just cast away. The government you know, attempts to seize the church as it has with health care. And then all kinds of regulation comes in and appointed leaders come in and leaders like Caiaphas. You know, Caiaphas was ultimately appointed by the Roman government. The Roman government controlled everything in that region, even the temple and its, its functions and all of that. Yes, they allowed the Jews to still maintain those things, but they were the governing officials over it, and man, if they didn't like a certain high priest, they could extract him. That's what they had done with Annas, and they put his son-in-law in in there because he was more like what they wanted. And I I believe in a lot of ways that, that part of America's fall, not that this isn't the greatest nation, the reason why it has been the greatest nation is because of liberty and the freedom to love God and to worship Him the way you desire, but I believe those things are not only challenged, but I think in the future part of our fall will be government control of of religion, of the church. And, and, the, and the, the, the incredible thing about it is, is that I think that it will mostly be focused on Christianity. Oh, there's incredible tolerance and, and leeway for other religions, but it, it's just Christ. And I think the reason, ultimately, for that is because the gospel is an offense to those who are perishing. That's why. That's why people are opposed. And so, someday, we could have a, you know, a, a government-ran, Church. You know, China, the church is exploding in China, but guess what? The government oversees it and dictates what they can and can't do. You know, and why do you think there's underground churches? They don't want to be tethered to that government and told what they can and can't do and what they can and can't teach on. And so I think we're headed there. I think we're headed there. And I think that that might be maybe the precursor to one of the greatest revivals that America's ever seen because we don't have that kind of persecution here. We have all this liberty and freedom and we have completely abused it and turn the church into something that it shouldn't be. And maybe that's God's way of saying, no, I'm going to let you become subservient to a hostile government. Who knows what's going on in the mind of God? But it could be coming. And so we could see this Caiaphas type of leader, or worse, a Pol Pot, or worse, a Chairman Mao, (laughs) who just slaughtered Christians. I mean, who knows? Who knows? All in all, Caiaphas is really the fruit of a state run church. He was appointed by the government of Rome, and he was godless and really no good. Again, he questioned the man of God, Stephen. What did he say? He said, Are these things so? Are you a blasphemer? Look at 2. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. Stop right there. Stephen began his apology by showing solidarity and respect. He said, brothers. Stephen identified himself as one of them, as one of their brethren. That's the solidarity. Now, we're not talking about as a brother in Christ. We're talking about as a brother um, or fellow Jew. As a Hellenist, his listeners would not have regarded him as a brother. They saw him as a a foreign half-Jew who had been tainted by Greek culture. They had contempt for his kind. But Stephen saw them differently. He saw them as the covenantal people of God, as the children of promise. And he considered them brothers and was not ashamed to be identified with them. He loved them though they despised him. This was ultimately caused not by his um, Judaism, but by Christ himself, caused by the gospel. It is likely that prior to knowing Christ, Stephen may have been at odds with men like these. Uh, There was a tremendous rivalry uh, between Hellenists and Hebrews. There was a bit of a social war, if you will, going on, Between them, but the love, grace, and mercy of Christ had extinguished some of that animosity, at least for a handful. Stephen loved his brethren because the love of Christ compels such a love for others. Did you hear me? It is the love of Christ. It is the work of the gospel that causes compels us to love those around us. Even those who belong to other religions, those who think differently, those who cling to worldly philosophies and false arguments and all of those things. uh, Those who we work with who uh, do not know Christ and who engage in every form of debauchery in those things. It is the the love of Christ that compels such a love. Such a love. And that is what is he ex- he's experiencing and he shows his solidarity with them because of the gospel. He calls them brothers. One would think uh, that uh, he might have responded a little differently with such allegations, that he might lash out. He might immediately switch into just claiming who they aren't and claiming who he is and, and thrashing them and maybe saying things that he ought not to say. But no, he says, brothers, very interesting. Mark of the love of Christ. He also said, Fathers, he said, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Fathers was Stephen's way of paying respect to them as the leaders of the nation of Israel. Now, that's fascinating to me because Christ had rejected them as leaders. They ultimately rejected him, and Christ rejected them and cursed them and gave them seven woes in Matthew 23, which are quite mind-blowing calling them a brood of vipers a number of times and all of that. But, and that's not because Christ did not love them or care for them. He came and spoke to them trying to reach them with the gospel. But it's really interesting that he calls them fathers here. Uh, Stephen is fully aware of their rejection of Christ. He knows that these men put Jesus on a cross. They were the ones that ultimately made the decision delivering him to Rome. And so he knows that they have basically, in essence, forfeited their leadership, but he pays them that respect anyways because they're still serving in that respective role. He calls them fathers, basically like elders, elders of the nation of Israel. You guys are the overseers, the religious overseers. So he pays a little respect to them before he opens up and begins his apologetic. Look at two. And I think the same could be, it applies to us in that when we defend You're getting that, right? That when we defend the truth claims of Christ, that we pay respect, that we understand that that person standing across from us or that group is a group of fallen people just like we are fallen people. We've been rescued and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They haven't. We desire that for them. But we still respect them as an image bearer, as someone who needs Christ. You see the parallel for us? It's so vital that we get that because that's not my first inclination when Christ is attacked. Mine is to throw a very heavy item at them or to lash out and to say things that I regret. It's very natural for me to respond uh, in the way that I'm being, you know, I would say attacked or whatever. I usually come at them the same way. And so we've got to be very mindful of this. Look at his response. It's, It's really beautiful. This is how the man or woman that's filled with the Holy Spirit will respond. If you're not responding that way, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at what he says in 2, the rest of 2, he says, the God of glory, I love that, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Stephen began his account of, or his basically fourfold approach uh, by giving them a sort of synopsis or overview of Israel's history. He's begun at literally the beginning, he takes them all the way back to the beginning He starts with the God of glory. This title appears in one other place in Psalm 29.3. Spencer read it earlier. Thank you, Spencer, for that. Um, I would say that this is the most rich, complete uh, description of the almighty, holy, sovereign God since His glory is the composite of all of His attributes you know, all that God is really, not that anything is below this, but in a way, God is all about His glory. Glory is the ultimate thing. And so all of His other attributes are supportive of His glory. And so when we see in the text, only in two places, the God of glory, that's kind of this all-encompassing, wow, He's at that level sort of picture of God, the God of glory. Beautiful. Beginning with Um, the God of glory, beginning with God, really signified Stephen's belief that God was sovereignly behind all redemptive history and that he was the orchestrator of the nation of Israel. Very interesting. Stephen believed, fully believed in the sovereign God. Now, after opening with the sovereign source, he turned to Abraham, the father of faith. And of God's people. Now, prior to Abraham, the nation of Israel did not exist. It was through Abraham that the nation came forth. It was through his grandson Jacob that the leaders or the patriarchs of the nation came forth. So, this really is the starting point. But that's not to say that the nation of Israel and that all redemptive history and all those things were not conceived in the mind of God prior to this. These things existed in the mind of God in eternity past. Always God's plan. We can't measure where this really came. We can see physically where it began. It has a starting point. All of redemptive history ultimately has a starting point with Abraham. The nation of Israel is a starting point. But those things were conceived in the sovereign, everlasting, eternal God from eternity past. And so we're kind of at the beginning where these things began, their fruition, where they started. He takes him all the way back to that divine moment. All the way back. Starting when God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia. Stephen addresses something else here that is somewhat hidden. But if you understand the context in which he's speaking to these religious leaders, you can see the hidden things that are here. You just have to know the context. Now, these people believed, these religious leaders in the nation, they believed that God had, in a way, okay, restricted himself to Jerusalem and to the temple more, uh, more so. You might say that these folks kept God, the God of the universe, in a little geographical box. The cause of this kind of thinking ultimately was spiritual pride. Now, during the Exodus, God said that he had chosen the nation of Israel from all other nations to be a kingdom of priests with the ultimate goal to reach the rest of the world. These would be, This would be a priest nation that would minister to the world of God's mercy and grace, to the coming Messiah. Really, they were to bring the gospel. Before Jesus came, the gospel to the rest of the world. That's what they were chosen for. It was this tremendous, wonderful task to bring the promised coming Redeemer to the rest of the world. So God's plan of salvation had always been a global plan, and Israel was to serve as His divinely appointed messenger. Well, that's not how the majority of Jews viewed it. Uh, In so many ways, they kept God's message and plan of salvation to themselves. Now, this is not to say that that every Jew and all Jews were always guilty of this because God has always had a faithful remnant that obeys Him. But the overwhelming majority of Israelites really worked and tried to keep God to themselves, tried to keep Him hidden away in a little wooden box behind a veil. Now, Stephen understood this. He understood their sin of divine seclusion and ultimately trying to keep God to themselves, trying to keep those blessings to themselves. He understood these things and part of his apologetic was to expose his listeners to their sins of idolatry and divine seclusion. At this point in the narrative, the Jews had basically traded their love for God for the love of the law, uh, their love of God for the love of the temple. Their love for God, for the love of their country. Stephen begins to systematically dismantle this idolatry in verse 2 by reminding his hearers that God has operated, has functioned, has done things outside of the Holy Land. Okay, they had this incredible idolatry that was all rooted up in nationalism. Israel's the greatest. Israel's it. That's the ticket. That's where God is. That's where God functions. That's where he ministers. That's where he does all of these things. Now, Stephen, or not, yeah, Stephen basically tells them, he tells them that when God first visited Abraham, it wasn't in the Holy Land. It wasn't in Palestine. It was in Mesopotamia. You see what he's saying here? You're all rooted up in nationalism. You think that Israel is the ticket and that's the key, and you worship this possession, this promised land possession. You worship it as your God, and I'm showing you that God does not function solely in that place. In fact, this place did not exist when God first came and spoke to Abraham. You see the inference there? He's reminding them, you've got to get your mind out of this geographical location for a moment, is what he's basically saying. Now, Abraham was from Ur, Mesopotamia, which was about 550 miles north of what would later become the city of Jerusalem. So the inference here is that God isn't limited to Palestine, that God is not bound to their parameters. He also reminds, he, he's, his reminder here of Abraham and when God came to him outside of the Holy Land, he, he, he's giving them a reminder, he's inferring that living in the Holy Land does not guarantee that a person is right with God. This is another misbelief of these guys that he's speaking to. The members of the Sanhedrin believed that they were saved. Most of them did, that doesn't mean all of them, but for the most part they believed That they were saved because they resided in Palestine or the Holy Land. Living in the Holy Land was a sign of their salvation and this is why so many people moved to that land and how Jewish converts that were from all over, predominantly Hellenists, moved to this particular piece of real estate. You know, if you're saved, you're here. You're living in the Mecca, so to speak. If you're a saved person, if you're that blessed person, if you're that person that God's shown favor to and who has rescued you or whatever, this is where you're going to be. I mean, that's how deep their nationalism was. Living in the Holy Land was a sign of their salvation, just like their wealth was a sign of salvation, just like these other things that they possessed and had. But living in the Holy Land is not a default mode for salvation. Just as living in the U.S. does not automatically make you a Christian. Now that sounds ridiculous that anyone would believe that. But 86% of this country believes it. How else can 86% of this country say that they're Christian? It's insane. But see, we have this philosophy that we've all been given that heaven comes with America. And so when you're born here or whatever, it's kind of this naturally built-in thing that you're going to be a a cherub plucking a, a harp on a cloud. Why? Because you were born in the good old U.S. of A. And guess what? The U.S. is a Christian nation. No, it isn't. And it never has been. Yes, it was formed with liberty principles and things that we may worship God freely, but we cannot say that this is a Christian nation. Yes, it was founded on Christian principles, on God's law, on the freedom that the gospel gives. Uh, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. But it's it's amazing how many people believe that because I'm from here, I'm automatically a Christian and I'm automatically okay with God. People actually believe that. And that's essentially what they believed in Israel at the time for the most part. I'll venture to say that this country of ours has more in place to hinder and to block you from salvation than to lead you to it. Things like consumerism. <laughs> How about the American dream gospel of health, wealth, and all those things? That's the biggest message of the church today in this land. God wants to do something for you. All you've got to do is follow these steps, and he'll do it. That's not the gospel. That's the American dream gospel. And I'm not necessarily opposed to the American dream or American ideal that liberty, you can pursue happiness. You can ultimately, what they meant by that was that you can worship God the way that you desire. We're not going to dictate to you how you can do it. But there are things that are in place in this nation that block us and prohibit us, and they're perpetuated by the citizens, sinful citizens. We're all sinful citizens. We're the ones that come up with these things. Now, don't be misled by believing that your place of birth, your family heritage, your nationalism, your upbringing, your parents' faith for students. I mean, that's the thing that I battled big time with junior high kids. Don't be mistaken by believing that any of those things or that your good deeds or any of those other things will save you because they will not The Bible says that a person must be born again rather than born in a particular place. You must be born of the Spirit of God through repentance and faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ to be saved. And that can happen in any place or town. For the Apostle Paul, it was on a road to Syria. For Pastor Phil, it was in Methdesto. You notice how I changed it. For many of you, it was in your hometown or wherever you're from, or maybe it was from here. Oh. You must be born of the Spirit of God, and that can happen anywhere, wherever God makes it happen. Now, Stephen's point was not to undermine the Holy Land or the Promised Land. He was not trying to devalue it, He was simply trying to lead his hearers away from their idolatrous hold on it and away from keeping God in a nice little Jerusalem box. He was trying to show them that their zeal for the land, God had given it to them, promised, that was a good thing, but he was trying to show them that their zeal for the land had turned to deadly idolatry. This is why he reminded them of how God first met Abraham in Mesopotamia, which was far from the Holy Land. We've got to be incredibly careful ourselves not to bind God up with boundaries. We've got to be careful not to limit Him. Sometimes theology can do that. Our nationalism can cause that. Oh, this is the nation where God functions and operates because it's America. The church is expanding exponentially in other places of the world, not here. They say six to 7,000 people come to Christ in America and Europe combined, where there's 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 a day in China, 40,000 a day in Africa. God is not limited to America. God is not limited to Israel. He's not, he wasn't limited to some temple or any of those things. And they had boxed him up in a pretty little box and said, he's all ours. His promises are for us and us alone. It's so easy for us to mishandle the faith that we've been given to think such things, maybe not the same as them, but similar, where we box God up or where our theology develops and it keeps God constrained to something in particular. We must remember that our minds are finite and that we are dealing with the infinite God, God who has no boundaries whatsoever, God who isn't held by time and space. God is beyond all of those things. And so when we enter into our times of study in those things, we must come in humbly, knowing that we are finite. When we talk about God, we must do it in a way that is humble, We're pursuing to know God, and that is a good thing. Pursuing to have God completely figured out can be very dangerous. We have to be careful, and that was the great sin that they had committed, and Stephen really is addressing it. Stephen continues in verse 2 through 4 by reminding them of what God said to Abraham of Ur. Look at it with me. Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. God told Abraham to leave it all behind. Leave your home, leave your relatives, and go, go to the land I will show you. And then it says that Abraham left Ur and went to Haran. This is a picture of what a true life in God looks like here. Believers are to be pilgrims. Pilgrims that listen for the voice of God and listen for direction. If God calls them to pack up and to move on, they are supposed to hear and obey, even at a moment's notice. Sometimes that calling can be very difficult because we might have to leave things and comfort and even some people behind. By reminding his listeners of God's calling for Abraham. And Abraham's obedience, Stephen is once again pointing out their error. These men were not like pilgrims, not ready to listen and to do whatever God called for them to do. They were deaf and fixed. Their fixation with the nation, the law, and the temple kept them from hearing, obeying, and even knowing God. If God were to call them to do something, they would not hear. That is seen so clearly in the words of Jesus to them. Repent! They did not hear it. They heard, but they stopped their ears. They were not ready to hear and to listen to God and to do what He was instructing them to do. They could not do so. How did they respond to Jesus when He came and said that you must repent? Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from your wicked idolatry. Turn from these things. They stopped their ears, clung to the religion, and then murdered the author of life. It is true that God gave the Israelites the promised land as an inheritance and home. But the promised land was to be more than a possession or a dwelling place. It was supposed to be a ministry base, worldwide evangelism where people would be trained, equipped, and sent to reach others for the coming Messiah, Exodus 19, 4-6. Therefore, God's requirement for his people is that they must be ready by faith to listen and to go to wherever he might send them, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, if you will. We should never fall too much in love with our dwelling place because God may call us to leave it behind. Why? Because we are pilgrims on a pilgrimage and missionaries on mission. By faith, we must keep our ears open, and by faith, we must obey if we get the call to move on. Now, this line of thinking was unfathomable to, to Stephen's hearers, and it probably is to some of you as well. These men could never imagine leaving the land that God gave them. But for them, it had become an idol. And yet, from the onset of the nation, God made it clear that His requirement for His people is that they had to be ready and willing to leave if He called them to do so. Abraham's example shouts aloud, don't put your roots down too deep. As Christ followers, um, do we understand this basic fundamental truth? Do we understand that we are pilgrims? Do we understand that we are all missionaries? Now, the church has taught us that only some people are to go to other countries to spread the gospel. We see their pictures on the walls at churches, don't we? Big Valley had a big wall of them years ago, and I was really sad when they took them all down. I guess they just didn't fit the decor any longer but it was really neat to look at these folks that God had called and sent. But in a way, the church teaches a message that it shouldn't be teaching by only putting those people up. Now, I get it. It's honoring, and we get to pray for them and all that, but the church basically, when they do that, it just says, that's for those people, not for you. You're all supposed to stay right here in comfy land while they all go out to the Sedan and get killed and do all these different things. We inadvertently teach that. But Christ called for the whole church to reach the whole world for him. We all share the responsibility to evangelize the world. The great question becomes, would you be ready and willing to go to Africa if God said go to Africa? What if God said I want you to move to a different city because I'm going to use you there? Would you be ready and willing to go? What if God said I want you to leave that particular church that you've been at for so long? you've been there for 5, 10, or 15 years, I want you to leave that church so you can go and partner with this church and use your gifts and talents at this church to advance the cause of Christ in that particular area, would you be ready and willing to go? That has to be one of the ones where people say, heck no, I love my church. I've just been there for 20 years and I'm so comfortable there. And and really what they've been doing is just going through these motions all this time. It doesn't mean they haven't been faithful there to some degree, but Is that what we've been called to, just to land in one place and just to do one thing for the rest of our lives? Oh, I think maybe it could be that God has called you divinely and specifically to one particular place, but assess your ministry and see if you're fulfilling, listening and doing what he's called you to do. Because it's much easier just to go and to attend and to give a little bit and to do that, and just go through those daily motions and go to work and sit on your lazy boy and eat a bowl of chili and kiss your wife and you know play baseball with the kids and just live this American dream life and and you know is there anything wrong with that? And that's really a beautiful picture, right? But in the same way, is is that all that God's called? do you understand Matthew twenty eight that we all bear the responsibility to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, not just those. People that are on that wall, how might we be better supporting them or doing something and playing a role and and doing our job? These guys had no concept of that. No, no, no. We're in the promised land. We've got the box with the law in it. We've got the temple, and that's it. God is here. This is the only place that he's at, and we're going to stay right where he is, and we're not going to budge. That's the mentality of his hearers. Maybe that's our mentality at times. I can't imagine God being present in those other churches. Well, that could very well be, depending on what those churches cling to and teach, but, oh, it's just all about this little circle and this little world and this little bubble and my little space. Oh, we've got to be so cautious with these things. If we got the call, if we were sensitive enough to hear the voice of God and he said, I want you to go. Would we go? That's what Abraham did, and he had no concept and idea. of He just knew it was going to be good, but he didn't know where it was. Just go. Uh, am I walking in the right direction, Lord? No. Yes. Okay. Oh, there's a stop and save. Sweet. I mean, he just, it's just like, it's just blind. It's just pure faith. See the example there that God set with Abraham." Your pilgrims, be ready to go. Don't get too fixed on one place. Don't put your roots down so deep that you can't uproot and move on. I may call you to go somewhere else. Christ called for the whole church to reach the whole world. But America calls for us to make a life for ourselves and for our families, to choose the best neighborhoods and schools, to put our roots down deep and to pursue happiness. And yet Jesus calls for us to take up the cross. To live a life of humble service to Him. To live a life of humble sacrifice. To use and to leverage all that we are and have for the sake of the gospel. To live as pilgrim families who listen to and obey their master doing exactly what He says to do. And if He says... Go. We must go. Let's look at the rest of four. Gosh, may we not be a people that are just fixed on this one thing. Part of my journey was to get out of the fixture, my last church, because I knew. I could spend the rest of my life here, and that's what scared me. No. I got something else for you, Phil. No, Lord. They got killer benefits here. My kids get to go to the school for free. Lord, are you kidding me? Oh. We took a step in faith, and you have done the same thing with us. It's been just glorious so far. And this is the beginning. This is just the beginning. Look at 4. And Abraham's father died. God removed him from Haran into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child after the death of Terah, death of Abraham's dad, God sent Abraham uh, to Palestine. Stephen calls Palestine the place where you are now living. He's referring to those men. He's talking to those men that are standing in front of him, and he calls them you because he knows that they are the true Jews, those born of the promise fully Jew. He says the place that you are now living, this promised land, Palestine, the holy land is what he said. Abraham's obedience under God's sovereignty accomplished God's purpose for his life. Uh, He made it to the destination in which God called him to go to. Stephen focuses on Abraham as a man of faith. Completely by faith, he obeyed God's sovereign call and left his homeland, not knowing exactly where he was going. Even when he arrived in his new country, God gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. The only land Abraham possessed was his burial plot, according to Genesis 23. All he received, and though he had no child or heir at that time, was God's promise and pledge that He would give him and his offspring after him the land as their possession. The closest Abraham came to seeing such a grand promise fulfilled was the birth of Isaac. God tested Abraham again. Look at verses 6 to 7. And God spoke to this effect, Stephen says, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others uh, who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. In Genesis 15, God told Abraham that his offspring would become sojourners in a land that belonged to someone else. He was speaking of Egypt. The exact length of Egypt's stay, uh, or if Israel's stay in Egypt, was about 430 years. So Stephen gives a roundabout number from Genesis. Um, God told Abraham that he would judge the nation that enslaved his progeny and he would free them so that they could return to Palestine. For what purpose? To worship him. It's very interesting. The purpose of for their freedom and return, was worship. Not worship of the land. Not worship of the things that would come later, like the Mosaic law, the tabernacle, or the temple. No, worship of God. The possession was given for the purpose of divine worship. I'll go out to say that everything has been given for the, that particular person. Creation, possessions, homes, spouses, children, loved ones, jobs, and so on, are all given for the purpose of generating love for God and gratitude. And it's all supposed to culminate in worship to Him, to Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Even a thorn in the flesh is given for the purpose of worship even tragedies. Our ailments and difficult experiences are supposed to drive us deeper into God. They are supposed to create a greater reliance on Him and a broader, wider heart of love for Him. They are meant to bring us to the place of helpless, humble worship. Some of us have allowed things to come into our lives that God is opposed to, things that offend God and harm us and harm others, things that do not inspire worship. Again, the reason why he's sort of emphasizing on this generalized truth of Abraham not receiving these things while he was there is to illustrate further their clinging to the things and all of that. Man, this guy came and he was held up in the highest level to them and he didn't receive the things. And you're clinging to all of them as your idols. He's rebuking them again in a way here. But for us, I was thinking about this, that one of the, one of the things to me that's such a trip have you gotten to a place where you begin to see all that you have around you, and that in those moments where you see what God has given you, you worship Him? I just started doing that really for the first time. Isn't that weird? The pastor, yeah, I'm bad. I, it just, it's, this is going to sound so trivial and stupid, but I'll walk out into a… we have this middle room between our garage and the house, and it's all enclosed and all that, and I'll walk out into it and I'll look at this big old pile of sound equipment that I have that I've been buying over the years. And every time I look at it, because I had none of that and I had no money for any of it. This is for my DJ business. But I look at that big pile and and I worship God. You gave me all that stuff. You know, now I look at my kids and it's like, man, you entrusted those those beautiful, hard-to-raise kids. You know, I I come to this church and it's not something that he's given me, he owns it, but it's like you formed this church. And I know part of it is because I have this calling on my life and and I'm working to be obedient and you're blessing me through it. So in a way, it's like you're blessing me through this place. I look at my relationships and all those things. You know, all those things, all those good and perfect things that God gives come down for the purpose of generating worship. Just as the promised land and and all that God had given to the Israelites was for the express purpose of worship. Yeah, but those men did not worship God because of what they had. They worshiped the things. You know, and, and it just it just strikes me because I think sometimes we, we get a, a misconstrued view of things and, and we worship those things. And, and sometimes, like I was leading to, we, we let things into our lives that don't inspire worship, don't we? We let things into our lives that divide, that that are sinful that God is opposed to, and there's no way that they can perpetuate some level of worship. Now, our process of getting through those things and repenting and become, you know, being filled with contrition and changing, now that can inspire worship, and maybe that's the purpose of our fallacies and sins and things at times, that we come through them and we become worshipers. But man, we allow things into our lives at times, I think, that don't inspire worship, and God brings things into our lives that are supposed to generate worship. It's fascinating to to think about. We do allow things that do not inspire worship. And I'm always reminded of how Jesus visited the temple many times during His life and ministry. And on two occasions, He flipped tables and cleared the temple of wickedness. For us, we are the body and temple of Christ. If we have allowed wicked things and things to come into our lives that do not perpetuate worship, but perpetuate sin and trouble and damage. Maybe we need to allow Christ to come into our temple and to flip some tables to cleanse us. These things could be on your computer. Maybe it's not things, but it's a thing, or maybe it's a person that you've been interacting with and Maybe there's a gal at your work. Maybe there's a guy at your work that you flirt with, you know, that you, you interact with, and it's, it's really dishonoring to God, dishonoring to you. It makes you look cheap. It's dishonoring to your family and your spouse if you have one, or maybe your boyfriend or girlfriend. I mean, these things, we let these things in, in, a, in a plethora of ways. You, you know, 80-some-odd percent of guys in this country are addicted to porn, 70%, 60%, whatever it is. Maybe those things are on our computer screens. Maybe those things are wrapped up in a person, in some relationship that's adulterous in a lust factor and probably about to become adulterous physically. Maybe, maybe you have a boyfriend or girlfriend and you've been living without certain boundaries. You know, that's something that non-believers do. It's pretty natural for them, but it's mind-blowing how many Christians engage in sex with their boyfriends or girlfriends. Oh, we're one. Yeah. It's called fornication. It's a deadly, deadly grievous sin against God and against your body. It will destroy you. If you don't repent, maybe you spend money that you don't have. You're just all about those credit cards. You just buy stuff and load yourself up with debt, and and I tell you one thing, I, I know how it feels to have debt. I've wrestled with it, maybe all of us have. I know I've wrestled with it at times, and debt does not inspire worship. Debt might be one of the greatest distractions from God. It's a terrible, terrible, terrible sin. Maybe drugs or alcohol, or maybe drugs or I should say a little too much alcohol perfectly okay to have some booze, but drunkenness is forbidden. Maybe too much booze. I can't tell you how many Christians I've met through my walk of faith and as a pastor who gets sauced all the time and think it's okay. It's like, no. What are these things? What are these things that we have allowed into our lives that do not inspire worship? The Israelites' freedom from Egypt The inheritance, the promised land, was given for the purpose of worship. That's a pretty profound thought that God gives so that He may be worshipped. That He may be worshipped. You ever really studied Psalm 23? He makes me lie down in green pastures. It's all about this ministry of the Lord to His sheep. It's beautiful. He feeds us. He brings us to the greatest pastors, And he, he, he brings us by still waters where there's peace. I mean, he gives us the very best. And that psalm is wrapped up. There's a purpose for why he does what he does. It's for his name's sake. For worship. God saves because he wants to be worshiped. Oh, no, it's just for love. No. Love isn't the only motivator for salvation. God is concerned with His glory. He redeems people that they may worship Him and serve Him. Oh, well, he's selfish for doing that. Well, if you're outside of Christ, that line of thinking's pretty easy to hold. If you're inside of Christ, you know what you've been rescued from, and if the exchange is worshiping the rest of my life. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. I'll be like those angels flying overhead. Holy, 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 I'll do that forever. Are you kidding me? I know what I've been rescued from. God brought them out of Egypt that they may worship Him. God gave them the promised land that they may worship Him. God gave them the temple that they may worship Him. God gave them the law that they may worship Him. God gave them, prior to Christ, their greatest deliverer and leader, Moses, that they may worship Him. The reason why God has given to you is that you may worship. If you have things in your life that prohibit that, let the Lord flip some tables. Let the Lord cleanse you of your unwickedness, of your unrighteousness. He desires to do so. As Christians our whole life is to be like one continuous worship song to our God. It's not one that we get tired of. We are living sacrifices. Daily our old self is being put to death. Daily we take up our cross. Daily we listen to and obey our Master. Daily we praise Jehovah-Jireh, the God who provides. All of this is done through the one whom God sent, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our Rescuer, our Deliverer. May worship be our loving response, moment by moment, minute by minute, to our good, gracious, giving Heavenly Father. Praise Him for what you have. Praise Him. what you don't have praise him in good times and praise him in bad times praise him during sunshine praise him during storm that's what he's called us to may we not be like those whom Stephen addressed God has no boundaries God is at work in our world the gospel is going forth God is saving people May we be supporters of that mission and ministry. May we not box Him up with our theologies, our thinking. And may we allow the Holy Spirit to convict and to remove those hindrances and things that do not perpetuate worship in our lives. And we all have them. I want to read a psalm over you, and then we'll have communion. Psalm 34. You can turn there if you want. Psalm 34. The psalm is so encouraging to me, and ah, we all need to be encouraged. I will bless the Lord at all times. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you saints, for those who fear him have no lack. But the, Oh, man, I love this part. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned.